This is Macro Horizons monthly episode 21. What's next? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzis, and Dan Belton from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. rates, IG spreads, and the U.S. dollar with the U.S. election over and positive news on the vaccine efficacy front. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. While the world remains in the grips of a global pandemic with rising case counts and additional lockdowns, over the past week, we have gotten some clarity on several key uncertainties, including the U.S. elections and progress on vaccine efficacy. This leaves us to focus on what's next, including fiscal stimulus, vaccine safety and distribution timing, and the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. Back in March, the markets extrapolated the worst case scenario and is now attempting to price past the contested election and the pandemic. The election results bring a high probability of a Goldilocks scenario of gridlock in D.C., coupled with an extremely accommodative Fed and additional fiscal support. The progress on the virus efficacy is prompting an attempt by the market to price beyond the economic implications of what is now happening on the ground in terms of rising infections and renewed shutdowns to a future point where perhaps the new normal is not that different than the old normal. As always, the main question is, what's next? All eyes are on the safety and distribution of the vaccine, in addition to further progress on remaining vaccine trials. The market is likely to go through periods of over-extrapolating implications of vaccine progress and then retracing as the economic implications of rising infections are in fact real. What we do not know is what the economy will look like when we fully emerge from our bunkers. Employment is rebounding swiftly with 12 million jobs added over the past six months, but the pace is slowing and 10 million jobs remain lost. It did take over four years to recover 8 million jobs after the last financial crisis. Once there is a widely distributed, effective, and safe vaccine, how long will it take for the economy to recover and perhaps even look more like the old economy than currently expected, of course, aside from the acceleration and the trends that were already underway. So let's start with Ian. Ian, over the past week, we've seen some wide swings in 10-year treasury yields. Most recently, the bearish momentum is continuing post-election with yields reaching the highest level since mid-March. Where do we go from here? You know, Margaret, you make a lot of very good points, not least of which being the market has transitioned to trading what's next. Now, the course of the last several weeks have really resolved a lot of open issues. One, can we develop a vaccine that has a high success rate? The answer to that is yes. The other question was on the political side. And while there are still challenges for the Biden presidency in terms of in the courts, I think for the most part, the market is content to assume that 
all else being equal, the results will stand. And so in practical terms, as a market, we're very content to move on to trading what's next. And one of the other key takeaways was there actually is a pretty direct path to returning to some version of normal. Now, there's been a lot of chatter about how the world will never be the same. Everyone will be working from home in perpetuity. I would counter that to some extent and say, listen, this is not the first pandemic that we have ever had. It might be our first pandemic, but that doesn't mean that in four or five years, we won't look back on 2020 and say, oh, that was a difficult period, but we're still out having dinner at a restaurant inside without a mask, et cetera. So my take is that the next trade in the market will be, let's price forward to some version of what we should expect in 2021. In the context of what that means for U.S. rates, we're currently in the process of redefining the upper bound of the trading range for 10- and 30-year yields that will be in place for the next several months. We remain in the camp that 10-year yields will get into that 1% to 1.25% range by the end of the year. It will eventually be a buying opportunity, and the feedback loop between equities and rates, I think, will be very important as we contemplate how the Fed will or will not respond to a steeper curve and higher long-end yields. You bring up an interesting point, Ian, and that's something that we've already seen a little bit of in Canada. The Bank of Canada has changed their QE program, increasing their WAM, their weighted average maturity of their purchases, moving further out the curve. This is likely, I mean, please feel free to comment on this, but I expect at some point we'll get something similar from the Fed. I mean, as we move into 2021, I think it's fair to expect a smaller deficit, for sure in Canada, probably in the US given the gridlock, and that would mean less issuance. And maybe in turn, that forces the Fed and it will almost certainly force the Bank of Canada to buy fewer bonds. But uh, in order to have the same impact, they're going to have to move further out the curve. So I think definitely that that's something that we should be on the lookout for. And the quicker the long end sells off, again, the more aggressive the Fed and other central banks are likely to be in moving out the curve. Ben, you raise an interesting point about the Bank of Canada extending the wham of their holdings. The Treasury refunding was last week here in the U.S., and Treasury once again increased coupon sizes across the curve as they continue to term out bill issuance. So while the deficit may be less next year, net coupon issuance is likely to be well beyond the $2 trillion mark, leaving plenty of room for the Fed to buy and increase their wham if needed. This raises a question. Even though long-end treasuries have moved higher in yield, they're still historically low. At what point does the increase in yields become problematic for the Fed or for overall risk assets? I don't think it will ever become a problem for the Fed. I think it will become a problem for risk assets, which will then increase equity vol and tighten financial conditions. So when I contemplate what will get the Fed prompted into action, it really comes down to where we either start to see wobbles in equity valuations or the Fed simply wants to get far enough ahead of any potential tightening of financial conditions that they feel compelled to deliver a WAM extension. Let us not forget that the Fed doesn't have limitless options at this point, although they can always buy more bonds. The yield curve cap potential is going to be very topical in 2021. 
And it does come down to the ultimate performance of the real economy. The economy is working its way out of the depths of the pandemic, but we haven't seen how this all plays out in terms of long-term changes to consumption, long-term changes to the housing market, et cetera. And as we go forward, and as that hits the economic data, that might actually prompt the Fed to become a little bit more worried about things like the anchor of inflation expectations, for example. Ian, you talked about equity market volatility, inflation being triggers for maybe the Fed buying further out the curve, but you forgot about FX. Last week, the RBA made a move where they announced they were buying out the curve and cut their base rate. And it was pretty clear from their statements, it was about FX. They didn't want their currency to appreciate further. We saw something interesting last week with rising U.S. 10-year yields and a steepening curve. Normally, a currency appreciates when something like that happens, but last week, the dollar declined as the curve steepened. And I think that probably for the Fed, if the curve steepens and the dollar continues to decline, they're fine. But if that correlation returns more to a normal relationship, then all of a sudden, I think the Fed is a lot more interested in buying out the curve. I'm saying that as an FX guy. Yeah, and on the topic of the Fed, I think another factor worth watching will be what the Fed does with its emergency liquidity facilities that are currently scheduled to expire at the end of the year. They had an original expiration date of September 30th, which was pushed back three months. And it's worth noting that the first extension was made on July 28th, a full two months ahead of the deadline. We're now inside of that between now and the year-end expiration of the facilities, and we still haven't gotten an extension. Now, obviously, much has been made so far on this call about financial conditions, and I don't think the Fed will let these programs expire if they think there's going to be any impact to financial conditions. But given that these are emergency facilities and the emergency is arguably passed or on the verge of becoming passed, when does the Fed put these facilities down? Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act doesn't give us much guidance. It just says that emergency facilities should be put back in the toolkit basically in a timely fashion. So the Fed has a lot of leeway with how long they keep those outstanding. I guess the other question becomes, does it matter for risk assets once these facilities go away? Obviously, the SMCCF and PMCCF have had much less volume than anticipated out of the $750 billion cap. We're at about $14 billion worth of uptake. So they haven't had any real direct impact, but there has been that backstop perception that the Fed would step in and buy more in the secondary market were conditions to worsen and it was necessary. So how much is that backstop worth? That's the key question. Dan, I think you raise an interesting point that the take-up has not been that great. The facilities haven't been widely utilized. There is some chatter in the marketplace that we could see the rules changing around some of the Fed lending facilities with the new administration that would potentially allow for an increase in participation. So on the one hand, the facilities aren't being used. If the market perception is that the emergency is over and they're not needed, there would be no reaction. On the other hand, it costs the Fed very little to keep them open in terms of a backdrop for market stability, in addition to the possibility that some of these facilities get changed in terms of the accessibility rules to allow a greater number of participants in the future. Yeah, Margaret, I agree. I don't think that the facilities will ultimately expire this year. I don't think the Fed 
is going to risk any reaction to financial market conditions. And like you said, there's very little cost in keeping them going. But I do think the Fed will wait a little longer until we get a little closer to the expiration date to see if financial markets start to react to a potential expiration. Even in 2010, looking back to the financial crisis, the emergency facilities lasted much longer. They were in place for two plus years. But once the facilities went away, there was a bit of a reaction in risk assets just from a similar removal of that backstop. So I think the Fed will maybe, as a bit of a trial balloon, wait a little longer this time for the extension to see if financial markets react in any way before ultimately extending it through the end of March 2021, which I would look at as a quote unquote live potential date for those facilities to go away. Of course, that is contingent upon a perception that it won't have any impact on financial conditions, which then hinges upon the path of the virus, stimulus, and vaccine, which brings us sort of back to where we are in square one, that everything depends on those three key factors. So just from a spread market perspective, very quickly, investment-grade credit spreads closed yesterday at about 110 basis points. That's less than 15 basis points off pre-pandemic spreads. And I think the perception has to be that we're going to get to those levels or potentially even narrower over the course of the next few months, given the outlook for the year ahead, as long as those three factors stay supportive. Dan, I think you raise an interesting point. And one of the themes that has been mentioned a few times already is a possibility for a tightening in financial conditions. And here we sit in the midst of a massive risk on rally in equities, backing up 10-year treasury yields, a little bit of a backup in the front end, mostly driven by the positive news on the efficacy of the vaccine. Given this backdrop, what would the catalyst be for a massive tightening in financial conditions. That is the essential question. What is it that's on the horizon that the Fed doesn't see, that the market doesn't see, that's really going to trigger a tightening of financial conditions? Is it going to come from the real economy? If we see a significant curtailing of consumption in 2021 or another fresh hit to the employment market that results in less spending and a leg lower in terms of the real economy, that would certainly lead to a collective rethink of asset valuations, particularly in equities, for example, which would presumably drive financial conditions a bit tighter. We're nowhere near the stage where the Fed has any interest in pulling back the massive amount of accommodation that's currently in the system. They've already told us via their own rate projections that there's no way that they're going to even consider raising rates until 2024. And while the Fed's balance sheet expansion might end before then, I think it's safe to say all of that is going to stay in place for 2021. So what sector should we be looking at for a big reversal of financial conditions? And frankly, I would say it ultimately comes down to how seamless is the transition back to some new version of normal and we will have a better sense of that over the course of the next two or three months. And if what we're pricing in right now, which is a hurried move back to normal compared to what we were thinking in August and September, then I think that we could ultimately find ourselves back having a conversation about when will these lockdowns end and what's the next possible step from the Fed. But for now, there does seem to be a reasonable amount of positive momentum in terms of the economic outlook. 
Ian, to that point, I would just add that while the news is certainly positive this week, as reflected in asset prices, when you look at the logistics concerning distribution, storage, and the process regarding safety, you get the impression that our hopes really do rest on a slew of different drugs becoming widely available as opposed to just one drug, especially if some investors are banking on steady progress towards a more normal economy and not merely a stop-and-go economy. I think the vaccine mentioned in the news this week in particular and a few others looks like they have the potential to create a lot of supply-driven bottlenecks and high costs. That being said, it's pretty clear to me that we passed a milestone this week in terms of progress and in terms of how we can expect investors to start thinking about the world going forward. In the international sphere, I would say that Europe and the United States look like they're poised to benefit fairly equally from the production and availability of vaccines, but investors will still differentiate on a case-by-case basis when it comes to how adequately prepared countries are to either produce or distribute a vaccine to the wider public. I think, in other words, what I mean is that the response to COVID-19 will be a key top-down consideration for investors when they look towards investing in a specific country. I wanted to differ with Stephen just slightly on everybody being in the same place. There are a couple of outliers. Australia, for example, hasn't had a COVID-19 death since the 28th of October. New Zealand for forever. And Japan is faring quite well also. And so those three countries you would think would be outperforming in asset markets. And they have to a degree, but probably not to the extent that they have outperformed in managing the COVID crisis. And of course, they're in a very good spot, particularly Australia and New Zealand, literally in a good spot in the Southern Hemisphere to just kind of ride this out until the vaccine is widely distributable. Greg, you raise an interesting point on the countries that have been successful in fighting the pandemic relative to the countries that have been less successful, where the vaccine is really the critical next step. And I think that's what we're talking about here in the US and Europe and many other parts of the world. So getting back to market pricing, we've had a couple of days of euphoria here. As Stephen mentioned, we've passed a milepost. And where do we go from here? Has the market extrapolated the best case scenario, pricing completely past the pandemic and the shutdowns to an economy that is fully reopened and potentially stronger than what may be expected or may have been expected, as Ian mentioned just a few short months ago? So I think that's the question, Margaret. Our conversation to some extent has been driven by the moves in the market this week, the extent of the sell-off, the vaccine news. I mean, it is still just preliminary news. I, for one, think we probably get some kind of approval before year end and the vaccine will get rolled out in the early parts of next year. And by the second half, it will be widely distributed. I think probably both in the US and Canada. But even then, even in that scenario, we're still digging out of a very deep economic hole here. And it's going to take time just to get back to where we were at the end of 2019. And then you still have to make up for all the lost time, the lost 18 months to two years that we've had dealing with this pandemic. And so there's still a very long way to go. And so I understand that we're in a better place. And a year from now, we'll be in a better place than where we are now. And the outlook is looking definitely better than before. But I think it's important to keep in mind that there's still plenty of speed bumps ahead. And while rates will likely move higher, it definitely will not be in a straight line. And all the news from here on is not going to be all good all the time. There's still plenty of speed bumps ahead. 
And Margaret, to your point about the market pricing, I think there's been an interesting bifurcation within the IG market that's worth highlighting. So as Dan mentioned earlier, spreads are just about 15 to 20 basis points wide of their pre-pandemic levels, which we saw in January. But some sectors are still well above normal levels, like transportation, leisure, and energy, reflecting that there are going to be some lasting scars in some parts of the economy. And what this is going to come back to is how quickly the economy can return to something like pre-2020 levels. And I think that could potentially lead to some volatility in certain parts of the IG market as this vaccine is rolled out and the effectiveness and the timing with which we see sufficient uptake is found out. Yeah, Dan, and I actually think that that brings us back to the broader issue, and that is whether or not we're effectively right in the middle of a transition of sentiment where the increasing COVID case counts no longer matter as much as incremental progress toward getting the vaccine readily available. From my perspective in the rates market, I'm anticipating that the balance of 2020 will be very informative insofar as we will get a better sense of how the market and investors are responding to what is presumably going to be ever higher COVID stats against progress toward getting the vaccine available to the population. So as we drift toward 2021, I could very easily see some of those moments of recalibration of expectations playing themselves out in risk assets and as a residual in the treasury market. I would be more surprised to see U.S. rates leading the macro narrative and instead anticipate will ultimately be in a bit of a reactionary mode once again as a function of the contours of the pandemic. So Ian, I think that sums it up well, where the market will be escalating between moments of risk on due to vaccine progress while still contending with the increase in COVID stats and perhaps looking beyond those increases. So let's wrap it up with a quick one sentence outlook for each of your markets. What do you expect into year end and for early 2021? We'll start it off with the U.S. rates market. I would characterize the next two or three months as containing a bias for cheaper and steeper in the treasury market, with the obvious limitation being the point at which other asset classes respond poorly to the steady increase in U.S. rates. Let's move to Dan Creter and Dan Belton and spreads. I think in the spread market, the one sentence summary would be buy the dip. Like Ben and Ian said, it's not going to be a straight line to a better economy in 2021. There will be bumps along the way. But I think that any opportunity we have for wider spreads has to be taken advantage of given the very supportive long-term view with a very accommodative Fed for the foreseeable future. Greg and Stephen on FX. For the dollar, I think you, you have to expect the general direction to be down in fits and starts. And I think the outperformers should be the commodity currencies. And I would highlight Aussie first, but also CAD, just noting that nobody wants their currency to go up right now. So the movement that occurs will be sort of in fits and starts and, and fought by the central banks along the way. I would echo Greg's remarks regarding the U.S. dollar and central bank reaction functions and add only that what separates this reflationary cycle from past ones is, I think, the sheer number of measures by central banks 
to suppress local interest rates and currency appreciation, and the fact that these instances exist in both developed and developing markets. So basically, across the board. And that is going to slow the pace of dollar depreciation somewhat, as will the stop-and-go nature of this particular recovery. Nevertheless, the balance of news over the last week or so in terms of U.S. election clarity and also progress on widespread vaccinations mean we've not seen the end of dollar weakness yet for this cycle. Ben Wright says on Canada. The Canadian rate complex will follow the U.S. rate complex. Cheaper and steeper is, is definitely the way to go with the caveat that the Bank of Canada's shift in QE and changing issuance profile from the federal government will drive relative differentials in those moves. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 21, What's Next? Please reach out to us with feedback and ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 